Another episode of the Behind the You podcast. Fired up for this one. Camp is here. Football's in the air. And we're talking ball with wide receiver coach Rob Likens. Rob, welcome to the podcast and uh, glad to meet you as well. Uh, same here, Josh. Thank you so much. I just, I really enjoy doing these type of things. And, and like I said, just talking about hurricane football and, and football in general and meeting people. So I, I'm really looking forward to this. Behind the you is behind your story, behind your path, your journey. But it is football season, so we're going to feed the beast a little bit here. We're going to give the fans what they want. we got to talk some Canes football. So I want to know, you've been in the business 20-plus years. 30. So I'm sorry, 30. Short changed you. That's all right. The first day, it's still just as sweet, right? Absolutely. You, you still get the jitters. You, you know, you want the first practice to be perfect and to be great. You're always chasing that perfect practice. It's like an open store, man. I mean, the whole season is before you. You haven't won. You haven't lost a game. So, you know, you're undefeated. Uh, and you've got all of this excitement. You're ready to go. You know, I just, just love the kids, the relationship with the kids. And I'm so excited to watch them because I've seen them in the weight room get stronger and get faster. And then to be able to go put the football aspect to it and go watch them out on Green Tree and to watch their confidence. It's just, it's an exciting time. Speaking of your room, I'll, I'll take your analogy. It's an open store. You have more, uh, more items on the shelf, right? Your room's different. How is it different year two to year one? Confidence, first and foremost, and this is what I tell the players. I told them this today and just said, listen, guys, last year, it's no secret. I did not have full trust in everybody here. And that's why we had a limited amount of guys play. And that trust is developed out on the practice field from what I see. And I just know through spring, watching those guys in spring, knowing that I trust several more guys, you know, so I know they're going to play this year. And we all know that competition uh, brings out the best in everybody. And so if we have more guys that are pushing more guys, then the, the number one guys are going to be even better this year. I know that's going to happen. And, and then when you play more guys, more people get interested. They practice harder. And it's just, it's more of a the family culture of everybody's involved. Everybody's cooking this supper, man. You know what I'm saying? We're all in there. And so uh, that's what I'm excited about this year is I know that I have more confidence in these guys. They have confidence in themselves. I, I, I know that we're going to be able to play more people that's going to help us. And that's just going to just going to make us better. I would imagine also for all coaches in their room, right? Your room is relatively young. You have a, a, like a large group of young receivers. I also imagine the allure of this is crafting them, molding them, teaching them, and then seeing them grow and develop. But there is, you look at the room and as a coach, you also can see the room today and you can also try and see the room a year from now, two years from now and what it can be. That that's also the itch, right? Uh, of what you do is molding these guys. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, Josh, the secret, you know, a lot of coaches and it's helped that I've done this a, a while and I've learned through, you know, my failures and successes is that it's all about perspective. It's all about getting the kids to think the right way, to think about their situation the right way. One play doesn't define you, even though you may look on Twitter, you drop a pass. People will want to define you. Trust me. All right. You lose one game as a coach. People will want to define you. But one situation doesn't define you as a person. You're constantly growing. You're constantly learning. And guess what? The best ways to learn sometimes is through failure, through the school of hard knocks. And so getting them 
to look at adversity the right way and the, a positive way. To me, that is the first thing that you have to do as a coach to, to develop your guys. As you develop their mind, you develop the proper perspective. We talked about having a young room, but I talked to Manny, Coach Diaz, a, a few weeks ago, and he talked about just the offseason that a guy like Mike Harley had and just what he means to your room, whether you had young guys, old guys, whatever, right, that you have someone else to show them the way. Oh, yeah, that's so big. And, and he would tell you this, when he made his decision to come back, there was a lot of factors involved, obviously, but one of the main factors, and he voiced this to me, was that he wanted to come back so that he could teach the young guys how to do it the right way. Something that he didn't necessarily have, and he wanted to be able to leave that legacy here at Miami, and he does. He actively grabs the freshman, and he's, it's awesome to watch. He's tough on them, and he holds them to a standard because he holds himself to a standard, and he wants everybody else around them to, to meet that standard, and, that, and that's a you know, big part of leadership. And I can't say enough about the work that that kid has put in, and then when he walks into the room, everybody around here knows, and in my room knows that they got to be sharp that day because they can't let Mike down because Mike's not going to let them down. And so it's a, it's a really cool thing to watch. You have another senior in your offense, your quarterback, which has drawn a lot of praise from a lot of people. From your perspective, you've been an offensive coordinator. You're a position coach. You've been around the game a long time. Everyone says he just kind of has it. What does he have? What makes him so unique? Yes, it's a, it's a you know, and I'll, I'll speak to his character part, and I'll let Coach Lashley speak to his, you know, his abilities and things like that athletically and, and as a quarterback as far as his position, but as a person, and I've been around a couple guys like that. Jared Goff was like that at Cal Berkeley. We had a guy that helped us win three national championships at the University of North Alabama. His name was Cody Gross. It's almost something that you can't define. It's something that you can't put your thumb on or your finger on, but it's like he just walks into the room and you feel his presence. Very similar to Mike, is that with these type of people that when they walk into the room, you don't want to let them down. And to me, that is the biggest part of leadership is when you have that, when you really don't even have to open up your mouth and people around you don't want to disappoint you. I can't really explain it why, but he has that. And it's, it's really special. For your room, so connected to that, his position, that having a guy like that is influential. Right. That bond between him and your guys that he even Mike Carly helps your guys and he has a way to help your guys. Oh, absolutely. You know, I will say this because of how athletic he is. The players know that just because, say, we call this pass concept and it's not open immediately. There is a good chance in about three or four seconds, something great's going to happen. And so you, this play is going to stay alive. So there's always that element to his game that, hey, if it's not open right now, that guy's going to move around with his feet. He's going to create opportunities. Let's keep this play alive. Let's keep continue getting open for him because he, that's one thing he can do. He can throw that ball on the run as good as anybody I've ever been around with his feet moving. Last thing on this topic before we kind of really get into the good, the good juicy stuff. Talk to me about year two with your offensive staff, right? Last year, we know the challenges. Three new coaches trying to come together, putting in an offense, even if you had similar concepts, thoughts, philosophies, et cetera, the benefit of your group being together through an off season to really fine tune what Rhett wants to do and also for it to sort of grow and evolve so that the offense is running the way you guys would want it to run in a second year with more experience, with more reps, with more understanding. 
Yes, the, it, the biggest part of that is when you put an offense together and you come into a new place and you got coaches that maybe not have worked together, that first half of a year, you're trying to just put everything together. You're coaching the coaches because what we got to do is the offense that's in, you know, Coach Lashley's mind and what he has this vision in his mind. He has to communicate that vision to all of us. We have to buy into that vision and then we have to take that vision and then we transport it to our position group. There's a lot of communication in that entire process. And if you've ever been a CEO of a company or anything like that, whenever there's poor communication, there's breakdowns everywhere. And it slows the process of something becoming improving and becoming what it's intended to become. So, you know, we had to go through that whole process last year. And then on top of that, we're running an offense with kids we've never coached before. We don't even really know what we're good at. We could like this concept. We could like this play as an offense, but we put it in. It may not fit the abilities of our players. And so instead of just keep trying to, you know, stick a, a round peg in a square hole, sometimes you got to go, okay, apparently that doesn't work for us. We need to find something else that, you know, is probably tailor-made for our type of guys. So we had to go through that process through half of the season last year. We didn't even know going into the first game what we were really even, you know, good at. But now that we've had the whole year, we've had the spring, which we didn't have a spring last year. We're so far ahead of where we were last year at this time. Now we kind of know what we're good at. We know uh, what our quarterbacks like. We kind of feel pretty good about the type of running backs we're going to have. At this time last year, we had two freshmen. We had, didn't know anything about those guys, right? So we had all the guys coming back that we coached last year. We have a pretty good idea of what they can do and, and how to put them in position to be successful. All right. Now we're going to rewind the clock to the beginning. You're a Youngstown, right? You grew up in Ohio. You're near Youngstown, correct? Do I have that right? Yes, I did. So that's like one of the football holy grails, right? Youngstown, Ohio. Why is that? And what is football like there? No, it's, it's a great place to grow. There's a lot of football tradition. You know, it's kind of pride themselves on being a tough area. Tough, hard-nosed football come from a, um, a place where steel mills from Youngstown down to Pittsburgh with the coal mines and, and just hard-nosed, blue-collar workers, and, you know, and that's where the kind of the, the toughness comes from. You know, there's a, there was a place, I, I don't want to mention certain high schools on here, but, you know, there's a place there's a, that's not very far in Ohio where they place footballs in the every baby boy's crib that's born in the hospital. They go and the boosters will place a football in their crib. And so from being just a, you know, a, a little guy on up, you're kind of taught that, hey, man, football's the sport. And I grew up with the days of Woody Hayes and, and, and those Ohio State Buckeyes and, and those tough teams and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a football town. Now, was football your sport? Was it your first love? I know you kind of started playing late, but like if the ball was put in certain people's cribs, I'm sure it wasn't too far from your home. Football was my sport, and that's really kind of all I played. But yes, I, I absolutely loved football. I loved playing football in the snow. I loved playing football in the cold weather. I always thought that that was really cool. It's so much fun to catch a deep pass running through the snow, and the snow's dropping down over your eyes, and that football coming in. It's just it's a, it's a great feeling. Yeah, so I grew up in Miami. I've, uh, we didn't quite experience it that way. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And maybe it was the sweat from my eyes that was, uh, <laughs> you know, got me in trouble. Your dad left, right, when you were young. Yes, sir. 
you're really young, like three or four years old, correct? Yeah, three or four. So what was it like living without your dad until you moved to join him? But I know you said your mom worked her tail off. You didn't have a, a role model sort of in the house. What, what was that like? How, or when did you understand that? Like what had happened? I'm not sure at three, everyone knows that your dad is gone. But, you know, at some point you understand there's a void. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and, and it's a little, you don't, you don't understand all the, everything that's going on around you. I just remember, I still remember to this day, which is really weird. You know, you have memories. Um, I, I remember the day my dad left. I remember when he told me goodbye. I do. If that by the picnic table of our house, me and my brother, uh, who's 11 months older than me. And I, I'll, I'll never forget that. And through the following years, I don't know, man, I just have this faith. I have this belief that it's a father's job to help transition a young boy to become a man. That's just my belief. So I believe that if that man is not there, there's a void. There is a hole that needs to be filled by something. And I think that's why young people, you know, they need to be careful on what they fill that void with. That's a whole nother story. But I became very angry through that whole process that my dad wasn't there. I couldn't understand where the anger was coming from. And so therefore, I didn't know why and I didn't know how to control it. And I started making some really poor choices as a young man, uh, especially in the eighth and the ninth grade and hanging around the, the wrong crowd and the wrong people. Uh, I moved from one area to another area. And when you move right around the eighth or ninth grade, that's a tough age because man, like what other people think about you is very important to you at that time, as, as you know. And what happens is when you're new, you get accepted a lot of times by the people that aren't accepted and they're looking to you gravitate towards other people in the same situation. And I just started hanging around the wrong people, making wrong choices. And, I'm, and I just started going down, down a wrong path at that time. Did you know, were you aware of what was happening or you know that looking back? I was, and I was, I knew what I was doing and I, it was almost like I didn't want to do it, but I had to do it. And I didn't know why. And I was being very rebellious. And quite honestly, that's why I have a tendency to be able to relate with kids that didn't grow up with a father, because I can see that wall that they build up. And I can I kind of look at it and I can recognize it. And I don't take offense to it because I did that. And I know exactly what they're doing. They don't want another man coming in telling them what to do. And so that was like I said, it's easily easy for me to recognize and then to kind of just like relate to them, tell my story, talk to them. And your dad, when your, your, your dad was gone and you guys had communication or no communication? We did have communication. Yes, we did have communication, but he had moved down to Mississippi. So I didn't really see him, but yes, I would talk to him, but he wasn't really in my life. But ultimately you go to Mississippi. Did you get, you kind of got shipped to Mississippi? You were sort of like, you're going to Mississippi. Like it was a, it was a, let's just say it was a mutual agreement between me. My mom felt that she did not want me to leave, but she was like, you need that. You need a father in your life. You need to go down and live with your dad. Did you accept that? Or was that another sort of point of anger? I sure did. And, and so I was in a bad way, getting in trouble, making terrible grades bad decisions, doing those type of things. And so, it, like I said, it was pretty much a mutual agreement. And how long did it take for dad to help turn you around? As <laughs> soon as I got off the airplane, which is so funny. All right, Josh, so you got to picture this. Here I am, ninth grade. Long, I got hair down to like right here. I'd like to see that. We, they, we need to get that out of the archives. We're talking early 80s now, so you got to understand the landscape, right? 
I get off the airplane with a black Ozzy Osbourne t-shirt on with long hair. Let's remind everybody you got off looking like that, wearing that t-shirt in Mississippi. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. There you go, right? So I get off the airplane and my dad looked at me. He didn't smile. didn't say he was glad to see me. Just looked at me and went, you're getting a haircut. It was the first thing he said. And I'll be dang, like the next day I was sitting in a barber chair and my dad was giving orders on how to cut my hair. It looked very similar to this right here. <laughs> it's a good, I like that though. You wear, you, wear, you wear it well. So, I mean, Mississippi from Ohio is a, is a, a 180, a 540. Uh, it's a... I, I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's numbers. Keep, that keep going. I don't know what's next, 1080? <laughs> that's right, that's right. Oh uh, yeah, oh wow is a big time difference. And this is Brookhaven, Mississippi, down in South Mississippi, very small town, but just tremendous people. And I, as soon as I got into the, the town, I could just tell it was just so different. It was a family culture, church going culture that I wasn't, I, I didn't know anything about that. Um, you know, it was the Bible belt, right? You know, so that was really different for me uh, saying, yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. I was like, what? Why are we doing that? You know, so uh, it was a big, big deal going from Ohio to Mississippi. Now, let me just ask you this. Is there anything about you that is Southern today? I got into country music. I probably shouldn't say this for all the little kids out there, but I don't do it anymore. But I, uh, as soon as I moved down there, I got into the chewing tobacco crowd, which I've since quit since 1993. Cowboy boots? I do have two pair of cowboy boots. That, there you go. That's a good one. Cowboy boots, deer hunting, fishing, got into all of that. Yep. But that, yeah, that's about it. You talked about fitting in the crowds, right? I don't know. Well, you're in either ninth or 10th grade in Mississippi. You're the new guy. Where was your path to fitting in? Was it football? Did it become football? Yeah, it was tough. It was tough at first. I was very close to getting in with the wrong crowd when I first got down there as well. I mean, I right into the same pattern. You know, obviously a young guy's going to do that. But this is what changed my life, Josh. My high school football coach, who wasn't my high school football coach at the time, I don't know why, but he came up to me and got me to come out for football. This was in the 10th grade. Like if I'm a coach, the last guy I'm looking for is a guy that kind of looks like me, you know, that's just kind of not hanging out with the athletes and all that stuff. And just, I don't know why, but he got me to come out for football. And man, it transformed my life. It was the first time in my life that I looked around and, and a group of other guys accepted me. We're like, hey, man, he's all right. He works hard. Look at Likens over there. He, you know, he hustles. And that was a good thing. And people relied on me to do my job. I relied on them to do their job. I'd never experienced that before. I mean, I thought that was just an unbelievable deal, watching other guys depend on each other. Um, that's a great word, depend. And from there, I was eating it up. I loved lifting weights. I loved hanging out with the athletes. I loved doing everything they did. I did everything I could do to get those guys to like think that I was one of them. And then I, man, I was just ate up with football since then. It's funny. I think Jess Simpson told a story about a high school, you know, a coach, you know, said something to him that just has resonated with him the rest of his life. And Rhett talked about, you know, the importance of, it was actually his stepdad, but I think he also coached football in, in his town and just the impact of belief and the impact of certain words or uplifting words or words that instill in you something that lifts you up instead of puts you down and how what people have done for a lot of coaches then for you guys it gets reciprocated back into the cycle so true man you couldn't set it any better 
I still remember, just like it was yesterday, we were doing a drill, which now I just come to find out they're illegal now. You're not allowed to do them anymore in football. But, you know, those one-on-one drills where you just run and just mash into people. But I had the ball. We were doing it. It was a drill. You had an offensive lineman, a defensive lineman. They would block. And then you had a linebacker and you running the ball. And he was behind the D lineman. You were behind the O lineman. And you run in the hole. And you meet, whatever. And he hit me, fell off, and he grabbed a hold of my leg. And I just kept dragging him because I was trying to take the football and put it over the five yard line over there. And I just dry, I was on one arm, one leg, just dragging, dragging, trying to put the football over there. And our head coach blew the whistle. And I'll never forget. He called the whole team up and he goes, I just want to say this. I love Rob Likens. If everybody hustled and cared as much as he did, we'd never lose a game. And dude, I was done after that. Like he could have told me to go run through a wall and I would have been, yes, sir, let's go. And uh, so, like you said, the power of, of words, the power of somebody else believing in you, it's incredible, incredible. It's life-changing. So in that time in Mississippi, you've, you've got football kind of lifting you up. How about your dad? Like, did his presence help transform you as well? Like, what, whatever was missing back in Ohio, was that void somewhat filled in your time with him in Mississippi? Yes, it absolutely was. And that was that's the good ending of the story was, you know, my dad passed away two years ago. But from that point in time, when I started playing football, our relationship changed. Well, I don't want to give the illusion like he started accepting me because I was a football player that that wasn't it. It was just that we had more things to talk about. We could sit down and relate to each other a little bit more because he he was a football player. He was he was in the military, in Vietnam, and in, in the Navy. So hard work, discipline, all of that type of stuff is part of his nature in, in what he experienced in life. And we were able to talk about that. And, and so that football actually bridged the gap between me and my dad. You had mentioned that uh, when you were at Cal, we'll get into that, but you had a 35-minute drive to the office and you guys would talk every day. Now that he's gone, I've lost my father too. Those moments you must have cherished in the moment, but since, so fortunate to have them. However they started, the fact that you did them, right? Like you must count your blessings that that became a thing. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people, they complain about their drive to work. I loved my 35, 40-minute drive to work every day and on the way home. Uh, if I didn't call him in the morning, then I would talk to him on the way home. And we just talked about everything. And man, we just got to know each other at a, at a deeper level. Uh, and it was wonderful. You also mentioned something about your last name, his last name, that that name, all of our names sort of mean something to us relative to our family, but that you just want to make the name proud. Yes, absolutely. My dad, man, he was just, he was a tough guy and he worked really, really hard. He was a tremendous worker. He worked 40 years for a company and, and never took a day off, uh, never called in sick. He only took vacations because, you know, you were made to take, you had to take the vacation days they gave you. Uh, that's the only time he ever missed work in 40 years. It's just, it's incredible. His work ethic was amazing. And just to make him proud in that area in my work ethic means a lot to me. I, I would imagine that's something you take with you. Uh, you know, my dad, work for himself, but I'd always remember, sometimes if I ever get down, it's a long day at the office, I just remember my dad worked for himself, would go to the office, and then I would see him at night at the kitchen table, working, or Saturday mornings back to the office, and I'm like, look, you can cut it up any which way you want, 
there's no way to get around working. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, that's what, if you're a father, this is kind of what you do, right? It's what you do to take care of yourself, take care of your family, try to be successful. And so I always think of that as like, all right, just pick yourself up and go back in and there's nothing else to do but to do it. That's right. And he taught me that you make decisions every day. And I could talk a while about this, about feelings. It's a podcast. We got plenty of time. Let it rip. As a man, you want to be a man in this world, you're going to have to do a lot of things you don't want to do. All right. But you have to do. I tell my kids all the time in my position meeting, the wide receivers, little boys do what they want to do and men do what they have to do. And so, yeah, I know you don't want to write that research paper, but guess what? You got to do it. So quit complaining about it and just go do it. Right. So, uh, yeah, you, you're not going to want to do everything. And I learned that from my dad. You just make the decision. And the best thing to do is to shut your mouth and set your jaw and just go attack it and knock it out and then get on the other side of it. You're going to have to do it one way or the other. That's funny. My son has summer reading and I'm like, listen, dude, you're not going to do it today. It's going to be there tomorrow. And it's going to be there the next day. And by the way, there's another one coming right after it. So at some point you got to do it. So why don't we just do it now? We'll do a little bit today. We'll do a little bit tomorrow. We'll all feel good about it at the end, but it's not going anywhere. So let's just sit down, take a half hour, knock it out. There's plenty of time left in the day. You got that summer reading too, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What is the summer reading? Like, I don't remember having summer reading. We have summer reading. His assignment is summer reading. We, being <laughs> me, my wife, and him, have summer reading. How old is he? <laughs> He's 11. So he's the same age as Cutter. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we have summer reading, too, this year, which I'm not going to say anything about that. But, yeah, I had summer reading, too. What do we say? Hey, coach, it's not going anywhere. Put your head down, shut your mouth, and go attack, <laughs> go attack the summer reading. That's right. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, if you can tell me all you want about it, Cutter's still got to read tomorrow. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh was it your dream to play college football? I know you ultimately went to Mississippi State, but like once you got hooked on the sport and you kind of really got into it, was that next for you? Is that what you wanted? Going all the way back as a youngster, I had always dreamed, as a lot of young kids do, of playing professional football. I didn't even watch college football as a young kid. Nothing but the NFL. That's all I did was watch the NFL. Browns, Bengals, what is it? Weirdly so, the Minnesota Vikings. I saw Fran Tarkington drop back in the snow throw a pass to, uh, I think it was to Chuck Foreman uh, versus Buffalo. I think somebody threw a snowball at him or something like that. And I can't remember if it was at Buffalo Stadium, if it was at Minnesota Stadium, but I just thought it was really cool. There was two sports moments that had that defined my love for teams. It was that one for the Minnesota Vikings and the New York Yankees. My first baseball game I ever watched uh, on TV was when Reggie Jackson hit three home runs, consecutive at-bats on the very first pitch, each at-bat. And I was hooked on both of those things for the rest of my life. I've been a Vikings fan and a Yankees fan since 77. All right. So I, I had to ask you about that because you're from Ohio. You lived in Mississippi. You like the Vikings and you like the Yankees. That's right. It's because of those moments. It really is. I attached myself to those moments and that, that was it. I was done. And uh, have you been to Yankee Stadium? Have you been to a Yankees game? Oh, yes. I, I, I coached at Temple. So I was up in New Jersey. As soon as practice was over, Josh, I'd get in my car by myself and I'd drive to Yankee Stadium after practice. And I could get to Yankee Stadium in about an hour and 15 minutes. And I would park. I might get there just a little bit late for the 705 game. And I would go by myself and just sit in the stands. 
this is during the week, right? And I'd go and I'd watch the game and the game would be over at about 1030. And I'd drive an hour, get home, get home about midnight, and get up and go to work the next day. And I just freaking loved it <laughs> by myself. Oh, my goodness gracious. Obviously, there's a lot of New Yorkers down here, so there's a lot of Yankees fans. But having been born and raised, well, not born, but raised down here, there was a time when there was no Marlins. The Yankees were my team growing up. I don't love baseball as much anymore, but the Yankees were pumped in every Tuesday night back in the 80s. Ron Guidry, Oscar Gamble. You know, they weren't very good back then. Ed no. It was when Steinbrenner was just throwing cash at everybody, but they had no, no you know, had no team. Jay Buhner, Balboni, like all these guys, right? You know, and then they trained in Fort Lauderdale. So my grandparents would take me like twice a year to Fort Lauderdale. You watch the Yankees. So my guys were Winfield and Mattingly. Oh, wow. Yeah, those were two great ones, man. Mattingly, wow. Awesome. Yeah, so um, the Yankees have, have a special place down here as well. But did you go to any games this weekend? Yeah, I went to two of them, two out of three. The only reason I didn't go to the one on Saturdays, we had a recruiting function. Yeah, well, you know, some things take priority. Yes, but my son was there. All right, good. So Mississippi State, again, so, so you get there and just like, give me the Rob like the quick Rob Likens Wikipedia on your, uh, your college football playing career. Yeah, I walked on. Uh, my first year that I was there it was Rocky Felker's first year. Man, it was just a different, I immediately recognized the difference between high school and college football. Big difference. Hey, funny story. I'm going to tell you. So I get in there in spring, right? No, oh, this is great. So I get there in spring and there's if this. Everybody line played of, like Rob Likens. We'd be winning the <laughs> national championship. That was never said on the football <laughs> field. <of this. laughs> we're out at spring practice. It's 85, right? 85. So we're in this long line of spring going in and we're doing just individual routes. I don't even know anybody. I just come out there for the first day and this guy in front of me in line is incredible like he's running a slant like I've never seen balls thrown behind him low while he's running full speed and he just reaches his long arms and hands down scoops it up takes off running and then I go and run my probably ugly little slant right get back in line he runs another phenomenal route I'm right behind him as you could imagine this goes on and on and on and finally I turn around to the guy behind me I go man, is this dude a senior? Because if he's not, we're never going to play. And the guy goes, dude, that's Jerry Rice. And I went, that's Jerry Rice? So he was from Mississippi Valley. He was training for the draft. And so he came over because he was right down the road and he came over to Mississippi State and he was with us in our individual drills, just kind of getting in shape and getting prepared for the draft. And so, yeah, I'm the moron that got behind Jerry Rice in line to run routes right so that then my career was over with after that because i was getting compared right directly after jerry rice's routes right i thought you were gonna say yeah that's his freshman and you're gonna be like i'm never gonna play <laughs> oh man no that's close I, I walked on i might as well walk off well he wasn't he wasn't the name that we all know now but he was a big name in mississippi because he had just come from mississippi valley and he was breaking all kinds of records I still have a bumper sticker that says Mississippi Valley State's Jerry Rice, number one. So, uh, yeah, but he was kind of like a big name. We all knew that he was going to be. We didn't realize what he was going to become at the time, but we all knew about him for sure. So was coaching going to be your thing? Yes. That's when I knew that I wanted to coach football. I, I had some good relationships with some coaches that are on the staff. Bobby Wallace. Uh, was the defensive coordinator my first year, who was the guy that I ended up getting hired by at the University of North Alabama. There's the connection. So there's the connection right there. And so it was 
all of that pain and suffering of, of being a tackle dummy for Mississippi State was worth it because I got to meet Bobby Bobby Wallace. Well, and look, everyone has a person, right, or two people, right, that pull them along or open the door. That's exactly right. So I want to before we get into some of the, the micro on on the career path, I just want to go to kind of go macro because everyone's path is unique, but some get there quicker, some get there slower, some take a winding road, some it's direct path. North Alabama, Temple, Southeast Missouri State, Central Connecticut, Louisiana Tech, Cal, can you know. How did you navigate that? Did you have like a long play of like what you wanted to do or was it sort of step by step of this is the next best move? Because I would imagine most people trying to get to power five D one aren't diverting off to Southeast Missouri state, central Connecticut in hopes of coming back. Yes. No, that is a great question. I'm glad you asked that. That word navigate is that that's exactly right. So when I was at the University of North Alabama, we ran the triple option. This is also a good story. And our rival in our conference was Valdosta State, where Hal Mummy was the head coach. And a guy there by the name of Mike Leach was the offensive coordinator. Heard of him, right? And all that's where the air raid was become starting to become popular. It was Division II. And we were running the triple option. Well, if you remember in 1997, how Mummy and his staff, they all get the Kentucky job in the SEC. And we just got done winning three national championships at University of North Alabama running the triple option. And we're not getting looked at anywhere because, you know, nobody's wanting to run the triple option in Power 5 football. And we, I looked over and said, this guy just got the Kentucky job from Valdosta State. And I always kind of loved watching their offense on film because it was exciting. And I said, I'm going to go learn what those guys are doing. And this is, I was 20, you know, early 20s when I made that decision. We get up to Temple University. And after the first year, Bobby and Hal were friends. And after the first year, we ran the triple option at Temple. And Bobby was like, you know what? I'm just going to rip the Band-Aid off this thing. And I'm going to go run the air raid. Rob, go down to Kentucky and learn that often. And so that's how I kind of got into the air raid crew was Sonny Dykes was an assistant down there at the time at Kentucky. And so I got to know him. And you know, what's funny is um, Jeb Fish that just got the, uh, at Arizona was down there on the same visit with me at the same time. I met him down there. We hung out that week. Uh, learning the air raid together in Kentucky in 1997. And so Tony Franklin was on the staff, great guy. And they, they all just like took me in and taught me the air raid. And Chris Hatcher was there. And uh, then Mike Leach goes off. He goes to Oklahoma for one year, and then he gets the head coaching job at Texas Tech. And then I go out to Texas Tech and I work summer camps out there and stay with Sonny Dykes for the next however many years. And then that's how I got the relationship with all of those guys in the air raid crew. And Sonny eventually hired me at Louisiana Tech. When you guys went from North Alabama to Temple, what was the allure of Temple in the late 90s for Bobby Wallace and then for you to go along with him? It was in bad shape. It was one of the worst programs at the time as far as record is concerned in all of college football. It was really bad. But I think Coach wanted a new challenge. We had just won three straight national championships at North Alabama. We're the only, at the time, Appalachian State since done it. But uh, at the time, we were the only scholarship football program to win three straight national championships. We were the only Division II team invited to the White House. We were invited to the White House for the Clinton administration. And so... We had kind of done everything that you could do at that program. And I think coach just wanted another challenge and wanted to go to the next step. And man, I was 
all for going with him. He wanted to see if we could do it at a higher state. Did you get to shake the president's hand? I did. Okay, so here's a semi-funny story. Broadcaster for the Marlins. He now actually is the, the TV voice of the Cubs, Book Shambi. If you watch baseball, you might know him from ESPN. And uh, I think it was either after the Marlins won in 97. Well, it had to be in 97, right, if it was, it was Clinton. And anyways, the way he told the story was you kind of get to the White House, and you're kind of waiting in a line, and the line's kind of moving through. And then he goes, and then you kind of figure out what it's moving through to, and it's moving through to shake hands with the president. And he goes, as much as you prepare for it, as much as you think you're ready, whatever, the moment you shake hands with the president, you tighten up. Like, it's like, oh, crap, I just shook hands, or I'm about to shake hands with the president of the United States of America, and that's a huge deal. Unbelievable. And it doesn't matter what side you're on, Republican, right, right. No, no, it doesn't Democrat. matter. It was just like, you're like, forget Jerry Rice. It's like, that's the guy I see on TV, and he's about to shake my hand, and I'm supposed to say something. Thank yes. you. Welcome. <laughs> Pleasure. Don't say anything stupid. Don't say anything stupid. Yeah, that's exactly what was going through my mind. But when I shook his hand, I immediately could see how he became the president of the United States because somehow Bill Clinton had that handshake and he'd slightly pull you to himself and he looked into your eyes. Man, glad to meet you. I've heard a lot about you, son. Yeah, and I'm just like, <laughs> he knows me. Bill Clinton knows who I am. At least he made me feel that way when I okay. chose Hey, that's the magic, right? That's, that's, that's the magic. That's, that's it. the magic. That's it. When, so you said Coach Wallace, you said it was a, D, a D.C., right? Yeah, he was a defensive coordinator at Mississippi State that first year, yes. When Hal Mummy was at Valdosta State and he's unleashing this offense, I'm curious what Coach Wallace thought of it originally, right? Like, that was it was the back then. I mean, now it's not new. But back then, it's like, what are these guys doing? Was he like, what is this? I was just kind of curious what he would thought as a defensive mind, sort of watching it in those initial – years sort of how it was perceived right in the college landscape bobby knew that this was going to take off in college football because of trying to defend it he understood how hard it was uh and and how was so ahead of his time on attacking it was really like shooting fish in a barrel back in the day with his air raid i mean they were throwing i mean like it was nothing to throw for 400 500 yards which was unheard of back then you know on a on a weekly basis and they vertical set their offensive line got in a stance and when the ball snapped they all just backpedaled the whole offensive line backpedaled like five steps so the offensive line which was say was on the 30 yard line you know going in when the ball was snapped a second later the line of scrimmage was back five yards so that was five more yards the defensive lineman had to run just to get to the line of scrimmage and then get past them and get to the quarterback and the quarterbacks were taking seven-step drops. They were taking gun five-step drops, which they were dropping way back. And what it did is it changed the sack angle that everybody was used to on a normal sack angle is what, eight, seven and a half, eight yards, eight and a half, whatever you teach your D-line. D well, crap, the air rate is like 12. That changes everything. And so you're changing all these different things. It was the same thing as running the triple option, but getting to it a different way. It was totally different, and you only had a couple physical days to prepare for it, and that's why it gave you an edge. And the way how Mummy described it to me, and I never forget this, and I thought it was so cool. He said, Rob, what does every little kid do when they're growing up and they see a football laying on the ground? They run over, they pick it up, and they try to throw it to somebody. You don't ever see them running with it like this or running with it like this and pitching it like you're running the option. No. You pick it up and you throw it back and forth to each other. It's natural. Kids want to throw and catch a football.
from picking their brains back then, what was the allure to them, right? Like, what did they trip upon? What was in the, the science lab of football that they were like, oh, I have an idea. I think this kind of whatever we we're is the now version of the air raid, whatever they called it back then. Ooh, I think we could put some of these pieces and schemes together and we could really mess around with like what, what, what were they what was going through their minds? That's a great question. I don't know if I can answer it because I'm not them. Uh, how about this? What was going through your mind? Let's say when you were learning it, like what was going through your mind in terms of your intrigue about what you wanted to know? It looked like fun and football back in that time was a lot of 21 personnel, fullback, running full speed into a linebacker, and then, you know, run it up in the middle, and everybody killed the tailback, right? And just the big human flesh pile, right? These guys were lining up in these big wide splits spread all over the field and just throwing the ball, and they looked like they were having fun. Just like when you go and play backyard football, not too many people line up with a big offensive line and sit, put their hand on the ground and run ISO in backyard football. What do you do? You snap the ball and everybody goes out for a pass. And it was like, wow, these guys, it's almost like it's alluring to kids. Like this is what kids are going to want to do. They're not going to want to just run full speed and their heads smash into each other. It's like, yeah, duh. It sounds so simple, right? It's, it only took us. Exactly. How can we make this a game that all all kids want to play and that's essentially you know kind of what they did and they all the thing about those guys that the pioneers like how first of all and then and then mike leach is they think differently they think outside the box they wanted to think outside the box they weren't satisfied with just let's just line everybody up and run the ball inside they just that's not the way they thought they didn't want to play football that way they wanted it to be more fun man my hat's off to them because they changed the game so what is at the basis and the premise of that of the of the air raid or at least back then yeah you know it's getting the ball to players that can do something with the ball in space and get it out of your hand as quick as possible like i said it's very similar to the thought process of what the triple option was you ran your offense you really didn't kind of care what the defense lined up in, you were just, you were going to run your place and you were going to get really good at your place. And what those guys did back in the day is they had their base pass concepts, their 90 game, whatever mesh sale cross. And these were the five or six pass concepts they were going to run. They didn't care how the defense lined up because they can't control that. But what you can control is how well you run those five or six base pass concepts. There's always going to be an answer. The quarterback has just got to find the answer. There's always going to be somebody open. He's just got to find the open guy. And to just run the same plays over and over and over again and get to the point where the quarterback has seen that picture, he understands how to get out of trouble. He understands where to get rid of that football as fast as he can. And the, the more times you do it, the quicker your reactionary time becomes. So the first time you ran, say, Y cross, and you go through your reads, it may look like this, but the 150th time may look like that. You can get through them that much faster, and that's what makes the offense go. So Coach Wallace says, all right, hey, Rob, we're going to go do this. You're going to go talk to Hal. You're going to go study. I imagine immediately you were sold, right? Oh, yeah. I loved it. So what I did I thought was really cool is I took 1998's Kentucky cut-ups, which is when I was bored, as a coach, later on, this is later on in my career, and I had some extra time, I would just get that VCR tape and I'd slide it in and I'd watch Tim Couch drop back 
and running the mesh in Y cross and Y sail. And I would just watch Y stick and I'd watch those plays over and over again. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. This is so much fun to watch. And so what I did is I took their cut up tape of all of their plays, which they were gracious enough to give to me. And I literally hand drew every single play they ran in 1998 on a piece of paper out of every formation. And I drew it up. Now, if I watched, I drew a play and if it was the same play I saw, then I would put a check mark. Oh, I already drew that one up. But I went through every single play that they ran the entire 1998 season. And I really taught myself the offense. Then I went and talked with them and learned some of the intricacies of why. But as far as what people do and what the patterns were and what they were trying to accomplish, I kind of learned that on my own, just drawing up all the plays. So you said something inside of your previous answer about efficiency and running the from the player standpoint, right? We have these plays and the first time it's kind of slow and then we just get really good at running them and we're sufficient, efficient, it doesn't matter. And I feel like as any coach at any level, any sport, there's always that dynamic tug at like scheming and perfecting your craft, right? Because covering UM basketball, we'd always go play North Carolina and they'd run the North Carolina fast break. And it was like, they only care what they ran. They were going to run it really good, and you had to stop them. And they knew what to do, and they had to do it really well, and that's all that mattered. Jim Beheim run the, runs the zone defense. You have to conform to us. As a coach, as a coordinator, is it easy not to get too big? No, it's not easy. It's very hard. It, we talk about it all the time in this profession. It's a huge attraction to show everybody how smart you are as a coach. I, I, hey, I'm going to outcoach this. I'm going to outcoach that. The thing that you always got to remember is that that's for the NFL, and that's fine. It's a completely different game in college, and the reason why is because of time. We have very, very limited time with our players in college, very limited time. Even compared to high school, we have limited time with our players. So here's the problem. You got these smart coaches in college who have a lot. That's what we do. We come to work every day. We do football. We have all of this knowledge. And then we got an hour to take all of that knowledge and stuff it in to an 18 to 21 year old kid's brain and then expect him to operate this at an extremely high level. You're crazy if you think that's going to work. It doesn't even make sense. It's not logical. It's not going to work. So what you have to do is you have to find a way to make everything that you've learned and you got to condense it. Then you got to be a tremendous educator, teach it to a young person. He's got to remember it. And then you got to teach him the necessary physical skills on how to do it. And you got to cram all of this in a short period of time. So if you have a bunch of stuff to cram in there and a bunch of stuff to teach, you're never going to get good at. It. You're just going to be running a bunch of football plays and you're just going to be okay at it. You're not going to be good. But you have all this knowledge and you go, man, if we could just check to this when they do that, that's a touchdown. Hey, if we could just do this when they do that, man, we're going to score. Get that knowledge into a young man who's just coming from English comp. You know, he's walking across campus. He's tired. We got that research paper to write, coach. He's got the research paper to write. And, you know, and get all that knowledge and teach it to him and then have him do that. Have him pass the test in front of 75,000 people screaming at him in the stands and a bunch of dudes running at him trying to knock him out. Okay, see if that's going to work. It's not going to work. That's why. You just have to like sometimes go, you know what? That's a great idea, but we just can't, we don't have time to do that. We can't do that. And so there is that fine line. And I think that's what separates the great teams from the average teams is not crossing that fine line. And you got to resist the temptation of trying to prove to everybody how smart you are. 
I'm sure it's not easy because you have a lot of time on your hands. Exactly. That's right. We get here at six in the morning and from six, we're waiting on the kids to get here. And we're like, man, I can't wait till they get here. And we, we've watched all this film. We got all this knowledge, but you got to find a way to make it. Deep. Hey, Mike, come here. Look, I got three chalkboards worth of tests. That's right. And they're looking at it like, what? Let me ask you this, though. Has that in some way, shape or form over the years, has that impacted recruiting philosophy at all? It's an inexact science, but hope as you can, you're seeking perfection to seek a characteristic in the kid that they are self-motivated, their desire to learn, to educate themselves. It's almost absolutely necessary to fast track this level of success or performance. hundred percent. And that's why it's so important to, you know, you have your set of core values, every company and everybody's into this culture thing nowadays, which is awesome and great. And you have your core values of what you want your culture. You just have to be very disciplined in the recruiting process to recruit to your core values, or it's not going to, obviously it's not going to work out. It's like having core values for a company and then hiring a bunch of people that don't represent your core values. It's just not going to work. Hiring a bunch of Rob Likens in middle school. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Well said. So uh, yeah, you got to, who's this guy in the Metallica shirt, dude? He plays his music really loud. His hair is really, he doesn't listen. His hair is long. He's, he's, yeah, he's very rebellious. We don't need anybody like that. Was that on the core value sheet? Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. You're right. You have to be very disciplined. And sometimes you do run across players that may have the talent you're looking for, but they don't have the core values you're looking for. And so you have to make that tough decision as a coach. There's another decision to make. Do you compromise your core values and go with the talent? Or do you say, no, I'm not going to compromise my core values. I may go for a slightly lesser guy that embodies all of the core values that I'm looking for. Here comes the interesting part. We use the term navigate, right? So we're at Temple, and then here's the turn to Southeast Missouri State and Central Connecticut. And I'm just going to take a stab at this, Coach, because you've talked so much about sort of just learning the game. Was it as simple as, I want to go coach and call plays in this offense? Yes, that's 100%. That's the only reason I left Coach Wallace, uh, who was like my dad. You know, I worked with him my first 12 years in college football. I owe everything to him. I just wanted to be an offensive coordinator. I've, I've always kind of wanted, I felt that tug at that age in my career. I wanted to run that offense. I deeply believed in that offense. And so that's what I wanted to do. And I left Division One football and went to uh, FCS, which everybody said, don't ever do. You'll never get back in Division One football if you leave Division One football. And I was like, I don't care. I just, I want to go do this. And I didn't know anybody where I was going. And I just, I just went and did it. But I've kind of always been kind of like that. But Rhett did the same thing, right? He goes to Sanford to get his shot at calling plays. That's right. That's exactly right. Have you guys talked about that? Like, have you have shared stories? Well, you know, we really haven't. We really haven't. But that is interesting. You're exactly right. That's what he did. And you just kind of, as, as a man, you just kind of want to get out there and do it. You want to do it on your own. You want to see if you'll sink or float, you know? Here's Rob Likens, wants to go call his place, thinks he's ready, thinks he's prepared for that next step in his career. What did you not know about being an offensive? Like, oh, yeah, I can do this. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait. There's some things they didn't tell me about being an offensive coordinator. It's my show, my room. I got to call the plays. I got to have them in every, you know, 30 seconds. What'd you learn maybe that first year of doing the job as it then prepared you to continue to refine your, your, your beliefs as a play caller? Yes. So I just want you to know you're systematically destroying my, we have a time in our staff meetings where coaches can kind of get up and tell their story a little bit. 
And so you've taken all my thunder over my next time that I'm going to get a chance to talk to the staff. <laughs> so, but anyhow, um, no, that, that's a great question. Here's what I didn't realize. Here's what I, I did not know is that I thought everybody just instantly buys in to something like I'm going to be the offensive coordinator and all the guys, everybody's going to love what we're doing. They're all going to believe in me and buy in and we're all going to be happy and be successful. I didn't realize how hard it is to get a group of a hundred football players, I guess on offense, say 50, whatever, going in the same direction all at the same time with the same belief, how hard that is. And also coaching staff as well. And the communication that it takes to get everybody on the right page. And here's what I learned was that when you assume in communication, I assume this guy knows this. I assume this guy has been through this. I assume this guy's been through that. Whenever there's any type of lack of communication through assumption, you leave it up to those other people to fill in the blanks of what they think you want. And most of the time when they fill in the blanks, it's not what you want. And so how hard it is and challenging it is to get people all on the same page and how much preparation and communication, great communication it takes to get everybody moving in the same direction. Running a staff room, right? This is my offense. I'm calling the plays. When or how do you take input, right? Like it's an open forum. Everyone has say, no, it's my way or the highway, right? Or it's evolved, like just sort of curious because I feel like times have changed a little bit, even in, in the world, right? Like people want to have their voice heard. How do you sort of manage that? Or how did you manage that, I should say? Yeah. Oh, man, th these are all good questions. You're like Bill Clinton, dude. You keep telling me, like, you keep yeah. shaking no, my it hand. Is. No, it's good. That is a great question, though. <laughs> like, you can never compromise winning. You got to win. You got to, as a leader, you got two jobs as a leader, I believe. One, you got to complete the mission, and you got to take care of your people. Completing the mission is you got to win the game. Right? You have to win. You're going to try to do both of those things at the same time. Take care of your people and complete the mission. There are times where you have to say, enough. Conversation's over. We're doing it this way. And when we walk out the door, we're all going to be on the same page. And if you can't handle that, well, then maybe you need to go somewhere else. That's kind of like the hard line, right? And sometimes that needs to be said if, if you can't get on the same page. Because if you're not on the same page in the room, there's a trickle-down effect. I promise you, kids are so intelligent. They can sniff it out. They know when mom and dad's fighting. And they know when I can go to mom and I can use what dad just said against and help me out in my situation. So you got to have be a unified front as a coaching staff because the kids will sniff, sniff it out in a heartbeat. They know if the coaches don't get together. So that has to be done in that room. And so there are times for that. You do want everybody to feel like they have ownership in the offense, so you do want their input because if you go several years without getting anybody's input, letting them have input, you know what you're going to have? A staff where everybody's looking for other jobs and they're all going to want to leave because everybody wants to contribute. They want to feel like they're part of the success. Okay, so yes, you have to manage all of that. Egos, there are some guys you have to watch how you talk to them. There's some guys you have to like maybe present to them and get them to like push them going, hey, I'm waiting for you to think that it was your idea. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of push them in that direction. Remember when you told me a few weeks back, let's revisit that. Thanks, coach. Appreciate it. <laughs> exactly. And I think it takes that. And, and that, that's like I said, that's such a good question because I think it takes 
you have to kind of wear all of those hats. If I think if you want to manage a room that everybody wants to be a part of, yeah, I can come in like a bull in a China shop. We're going to do it my way or the highway. And like I said, you're going to have a lot of unhappy people, a lot of behind your back, closed door conversations, man, that guy, man, he just says whatever he wants it. Yeah. You don't want to have that. Right. But also everybody needs to know that there is one leader. There's one final decision that has to be made and everybody has to drop their ego. We all have to join in and we all have to buy in to that or it's going to fail somewhere. Down. You talk about recruiting and philosophy and core values. It's the same for your staff, right? You got to have people and the core values of your staff, right? That you know you have a staff that understands that line, right? You've been an OC. Brett talked about this. You've been an OC. Garen's been an OC. He's obviously the OC. So you understand your input's valued, but you also understand at some point if he says, hey, but you've been there, so you understand if there's that cohesion in, in the room. Yes, and, and that, that's why I think, uh, I mean, it's so good working with Garen and Rhett just because we kind of know, yeah, I know a lot of football and past concepts and all that stuff. And we could throw all those up on the board, but we can't do them all. And we're not going to be great at all of them. So why waste everybody's time? And I like suggest to him, hey, you know, maybe we might need to think about tweaking this and, and doing this, but that's about it. If everybody comes in every day with a million ideas and we got to wade through all of that stuff, we're never going to get anything accomplished. And that's why I think this second year is like, I know kind of like what Rhett is looking for. Like, I kind of know what he wants to do. So I don't have to like suggest anything. I just kind of know what he wants to do. So I can start working towards presenting him things that go towards what his vision is for the offense. But don't you think some of that is hatched in that you've led that room before? Oh, absolutely. And that's what I'm saying. I don't have to come in every day and go, man, I hope these guys think I'm smart. I'm going to get in there in the meeting today and I'm going to suggest a bunch of stuff. I don't have to do that. Hey, guys, here's all the plays from the 98 Kentucky Cutups. <laughs> we need to run every single one up. Bored. I was bored last night. Cutter was doing his homework. And so I, just, I just decided to do this for fun. <laughs> No, that's great. That's great. The Yankees weren't playing. I had nothing better to do. So, exactly. hey, Brad, here's a here's a thousand plays. Have at it. Help it. Yeah. Did I help? Did I contribute today? <laughs> no, because you you just know, like after a while, as an offensive coordinator, you just like, okay, guys, I'm done with the ideas. We got to come up with a plan of how we're going to execute what we already have. And so you kind of know when to cut it off. You're not overbearing with any of that stuff. And you know that my job is to make sure I got two jobs when I come here. Like the way I think about it is number one, I got to be a great position coach for Manny Diaz. I got to help make Manny Diaz be successful. That's what I need to do. And then I also have to help Rhett Lashley be successful because if I'm helping Rhett Lashley be successful, that means our offense is successful. And if I'm helping Manny Diaz be successful, that means our team is successful. And that's all that matters. But those are core values. As Manny's looking at you, I would think that's a core value of someone I want on my staff because he understands really the ultimate goal, right? Yeah, it's not about me. I'm here to help. Yes, absolutely. And that's where I kind of like where I'm at in my career, man. I really do. Like, I don't need to go be an offensive coordinator. If it ever presented itself somewhere, I'd think about it then. I don't even think about it right now. You know what I think about? I love my receivers in my room. I love those kids. I come in every day. I want to serve them. I want to help them realize their dreams. I want to help Rhett Lashley be successful. I love Manny Diaz. I want to see Manny Diaz be successful. And I, I go home and I'm happy as anything every night. I don't think about anything else. I don't think about 
man, when am I going to be a head coach? When am I going to be an offense? I don't care. A few minutes ago, you mentioned Sonny Dykes. You said that you would um, stay with him at Texas Tech. So what, did you meet him through? He was at Kentucky. So he's at Kentucky. That's where you met him? He was at Kentucky with those guys when I visited, yes. Got it. And then we just developed a relationship. We developed a friendship. He's a great dude. Yeah, great guy. We instantly hit it off for some reason. We just became really good friends. And the first opportunity that he had to hire me, hired me at uh, Louisiana Tech when he got his first head coaching job. Uh, I think I was the first person he hired. So that's another shared connection with you and Rhett. I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that in a sec. I imagine those are the fun days, right? When like if you're at going to summer camps at Texas Tech and staying with Sonny Dykes and you're just it's after camp and you're sitting around the table having a beverage or two, talking ball. Like that's the fun stuff, right? Like that's the good old stuff. That was back in the day. That was a lot of fun. There was a lot of future head coaches that were on the staff at Texas Tech. Lincoln Riley was there. Dana Holgerson was there. Seth Luttrell was there. Bill Biedenboe was there. Obviously, Mike Leach was there. Art Bryles was there for the first year. And so you had all of these coaches, all of this knowledge. And man, I was just soaking it up and, and loving every, every minute of it. And we were young and we were just having the time of our life. That's the fun stuff, right? That's the fun stuff. But let's just fast forward to Miami. So you, Manny, Rhett, like how does that all, how does that come together? I mean, you know, you guys have Sonny, right? You know, you share some offensive philosophy. So who calls who? How does that happen? What's the allure? What was the intrigue for you to come down here and, and work with those guys? Right after I got let go at, at Arizona State, Sonny called me up and he said, man, why don't you come hang out uh, with me down here? He's at SMU, right? At SMU, yeah. They were getting prepared for their bowl game. I had never met Rhett. Oh, I met Hold on. I did. I met Rhett at a football camp, Texas quarterback camp that summer. So I went and hung out with them as they prepared for their bowl game and sat in their offensive meetings with Rhett and those guys as they were preparing for their bowl game and just kind of got a chance to meet those guys and, and just hang out. I was very gracious uh, of Sonny to do that because, you know, whenever you get let go is the first time I had ever been fired from a job and shoot, man, those are tough times on everybody. And he just invited me over and I hung out and stayed at his house and it was really good. And that's the first time I met Rhett. And then who did the call come from about, hey, Rob, we'd like to talk to you about this job at Miami. Rhett leaves and takes this job. And so obviously I'm in communication with Sonny and we're talking back and forth because, I mean, he has a job open now because because Rhett just left. So through that, we're talking. And then I, I can't remember if I called Rhett or Rhett called. I can't remember exactly what it was. I may have called Rhett or texted him. We'll fact check it. We'll fact check it. Yeah, fact check it. it. And <laughs> texted him and basically said, congratulations, man. Yeah, we'll solicit your phone records and we'll see yeah. who, you know, who had the first yeah. text. But one of us reached out and I, I you know, said, congratulations, man. That's going to be so exciting doing what you're doing, running a fast, up-tempo offense at Miami, which we all wondered what it would be like if somebody ever did that. At, at the U, like for years, since 19 freaking 98, I've been thinking about that, right? And how cool that would be. And then through those discussions there, he was like, well, you think maybe, you know, you'd be interested there? Or I might've said, hey man, would you like a wide receiver coach? I, like I said, I can't remember which one first, but we started ta talking then. I asked this to Rhett, what's the challenge about teaching tempo? Getting the kids to understand that how fast you, you have to line up OK, because if you don't, it, it's a waste of time unless you line up and snap the ball 
or you have a chance to snap the ball at an elite level because defenses are starting to be able to catch up to it a little bit better than what they had in the past. Like we were doing it back at Louisiana Tech. My uh, third year there, we scored like 52 points a game. We just outlined up people and, and ran fast as humanly possible plays. And I saw the effects of tempo. It was like, this is incredible. That and then they have less time to think about the detail of their assignment. Obviously, if you're not huddling, jogging from the huddle out to your alignment, and you have all those time that time to think and process all the information. Now you look, you see a signal, you got to run, you got to line up, and then you got to look, you got to find out where the corners lined up. You got to think about how did Coach Likens tell me to run that versus inside leverage, and bam, the ball snapped. And so you have to process all of that information so much more faster than you do at a normal pace. So I want you to give me, I call it nerd talk, nerd me up here on football. Because as you said, every kid likes to play wide receiver, right? They just throw the ball. Oh, that's easy. Run routes, throw the ball, catch, run. So what, what, what I'm getting at is dive into some of the technicalities of playing your position, the level of detail that's required to be a very good D1 wide receiver. Besides my 40 time. I'll start with outside receiver because that to me is it's the most challenging uh, right off the bat because everybody is starting to press now. Everybody is starting to bump and run, line up in the wide receiver's face. And in, so instead of just back in the old days where you'd run a curl and you ran a curl like this, run, fake the pose, toast it, come back to the quarterback. Well, now you have to navigate all of that stuff with a guy who's six foot tall and he's got long arms and he's trying to punch you in the face like when the ball snaps. Now you got to navigate all of that stuff and get open with a guy that's running with you in tight quarters nonstop with you the entire time. There's all kinds of hand placement, shoulder placement, body position, all of that stuff, not being in the way of somebody else's route if it's a big progression read concept. The tough thing is to teach how to get off press coverage initially as an outside receiver because you have to be able to do that. Then each release has to coincide with the route that you're running. Releasing outside of a press corner to run this particular route is awesome. It's deadly if you release outside and you're trying to run this route. Now you've just really hurt the entire play. And just by doing that one little thing, you may just have gotten the quarterback sacked. So you have to understand the release coincides with the concept, with the route that we're running. And then now you also got to know the timing of the throw when is the quarterback prepared to throw the ball with me, to me? Okay, and for instance, let's suppose you're running Y-cross and you're running the backside post curl on Y-cross. That's like the fourth to fifth, however you want to coach and teach it, read for the quarterback. So do you want to be open early? No, because the quarterback's not even looking at you. And think about it this way. Say you're working a press release, you're running, you stick your toe in the ground and you turn to get open. I'm open, throw me the ball. Well, the quarterback's still looking over on the other side of the field. Well, once you stop, what do you think the DB's doing? He's also stopped. He's also recognizing. Now he's breathing down the back of your neck. So knowing that you're the fourth read in that concept, you don't want to get open at this particular time. You want to get open at this particular time. You may have done everything great and got open and run a great route, but it was too early. You got to get open later. And that's a foreign concept to some kids. So those are the type of the little details. To run a pass, con if you're going to be an elite passing team, those are the little type of details that you have to cover. How hard was last year for you being a new coach, managing a room via Zoom? Oh, my gosh. First of all, I'm Italian. 
So I love to use my hands. That I'm well aware of. Wait, we didn't link the Italian to this to Mississippi. There you go, right? What Youngstown? Come on. Who's got good lasagna in, in <laughs> Mississippi? <laughs> so uh, body language is everything. Reading people's body language, I think, you know, is an art. You have to work on it and, and read it. And that's to me, is how I communicate people. I communicate way better with people in person. You know, I, I guess we all do, but it's especially me. Like it's just in my, I just, I love to read people's body languages. Are they slouching over? Are they sitting up? Are they leaning forward? And oh my gosh, on Zoom, I, all I can see is like maybe somebody's ceiling fan. Hey, are you in there? You know, I mean like, you know, you got somebody's dog. Turn their camera off. I'm off to the bathroom coach. You know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You got a guy driving down the road. You know, he's looking around, you know. Camera's in his lap. I'm looking up your nose. Get, hey, kid, get a tissue. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it's it's incredibly challenging, but I got to give it to my guys, man. I, I do, man. I have the greatest group of kids in the world. I love my guys. They've been so good. Uh, but, yes, it's extremely challenging over, over Zoom. There's a purity to you that I felt getting ready for this and just listening to this about how you feel about your players here or anywhere else. Like the value I feel like you place in that and how special you want it to be for them. Does that have anything to do with your upbringing? Yes, because I just kind of like I try to put myself in every one of my players shoes and I try to think, hey, what is this kid? Where is he coming from? How's he doing? I try to understand, Okay, this guy may not have a dad in his life. That's why he's acting the way he is. When I approach him and I, you know, maybe talk to him a little more stern than normal, I can kind of see the change in his attitude. Okay, how are we going to navigate around that? And one thing you can ask my kids, I don't like shy away from asking questions. Like I confront all body language, the way they look at me, like, why are you looking at me like that? You know, like, you know, like I confront everything because I like everything to be all out in the open and let us, let's all just talk about it. Right. You know, I can just kind of like get a, where did the, where's this kid coming from? What's his background? Hey man, you know, better than that. And then this kid, he may not know better than that. Right. And it's my job to teach him because he's never had anybody teach him that. And so I need to have more compassion and patience with a guy that has never been taught. But a guy that I know that's been taught right and he's acting the wrong way, hey, man, no, you're, you're, you're not going to do that, right? And so you just kind of like see, you, you got to like treat every one of them different according to where they are in life. And I, that's the part of the job that I, that I actually enjoy. We're going to come full circle into fatherhood. So first and foremost, I guess tell two stories. One, the bless, every son is a blessing to their family, but I guess you had some challenges. And then number two, you please have to share with, all, everyone, the backstory on his, on his name, because I love it. After Southeast Missouri State, our head coach resigns, and we're all out looking for a job. I got, we're one week away from not having health insurance, not having paycheck to pay for the house, anything. And I'm praying, God, you got you to gotta find me a job like in a week. Like, I, I, mean, I got to be able to pay for our house and stuff, right? I, we got no health insurance, nothing. Me and my wife. Can you put my resume on like ZipRecruiter or something? Like any yeah, something. I'm the guy posting the resume on a board of five billion resumes at the coaches convention. Oh, like, you know what? I've been to the coaches convention. I've seen that board. Exactly. I'm like, Bob Stoops is going to walk by this board and he's going to see mine and rip it off. And he's going to hire me. I know he is. And so then I get a call that week 
from Jeff McInerney at Central Connecticut State University. So make a long story short, I'm like, first of all, God, I, I'm, I don't want to go to Connecticut. Come on, Mick. Is there any other? Can you answer the prayer a different way? But anyhow, I end up going up to Connecticut, which is through our insurance there. It includes in vitro. Maybe God had, a, God had a master plan. Just really, really wild, right? Because me and my wife had been through a series of all kinds of things, and we just we were told it's not happening. We're not going to be able to do it. So that the only way we could was in vitro. And I'm like, man, that's like 30,000, 25,000. I think whatever, this big number. I said, we can't afford that. Come to find out it's paid fully through insurance. Central Connecticut State was like, wow, that, that's really cool. So anyhow, we have our guy. We're going to name him Nick, give him a good Italian name. But we'd have to give him a middle name, which my wife said I could give. I said, okay, I already know what it's going to be because I knew the story of Mariano Rivera. And if you ever look it up, you could look it up and read his story in any of his books, autobiographies or anything. And basically, one day he picked up the ball and he threw it and it drastically right at the end would just dart off to the left. And it kind of really kind of scared him because he's like, oh, my gosh, what, what am I going to do? I can't control it. And Mel Stoudemire said, well, you better control it. If you can't fix it, you better control it. And uh, that became his pitch. And it was called a cutter, cut fastball. And he went on the next, I don't know how many years, 16 years or something crazy. And he threw one pitch. Everybody in the universe knew that pitch was coming. And he threw it every single time. And he's the best closer in the history of Major League Baseball. And that's unheard of to have one pitch and everybody knows it's coming. Because everybody knows when you're an effective pitcher, you have a fastball, you have a changeup, you have a curve. You, you do something different. Keep people off balance. Nothing. Boom, boom. And then anytime anybody ever asked him, how did you get the cut fastball? How did you find up the cutter? And he would say, I don't know. God gave it to me. And I wanted to look at my son. And every time I said his name and remembered that, I would know God gave him to me. So his name is Nick Cutter Likens? Nicholas Cutter Likens. That's it. So he goes by what, though? Oh, it's Cutter. Yeah. He's, ever since we moved to uh, the South, when we moved to Louisiana Tech, I didn't even tell people his name. They found out his middle name. And everybody, his teachers, everybody, oh, he's Cutter. Because he's, you know, is, if you're from the South, you're, you know, you got to have a nickname. That's awesome. I love that story. So, uh, Coach, thank you. This has been awesome. I love all these. Um, I just find them fascinating. And I really enjoyed talking to you, Coach. Appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed it too, man. We're going to have to, like, off camera or whatever and, and go have a coffee, hang out. That was awesome, man. Thank you. 